It's Thursday, August 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Night two of the Democratic debates has ended, and the frontrunner Joe Biden was taking hits from all around on healthcare, immigration, and criminal justice reform. He handled himself better than the last time, but did not get out unscathed. Senator Kamala Harris also took a lot of heat from other candidates and was put on defense many times throughout. Senator Cory Booker might have won the Most Improved Candidate Award. He needed a breakout moment and had a few good exchanges with Joe Biden. Julia Manchester, campaign reporter at The Hill, joins us for a breakdown of night two. Next, after news came to light about Operation Varsity Blues, the college admissions cheating scandal, a national conversation occurred about unfairness in the admissions process. Now, a new financial aid loophole is facing scrutiny by the Education Department. They are looking into a tactic used by wealthy parents in the suburbs of Chicago, where they transfer the legal guardianship of their college-bound children so they can more easily claim financial aid. Doug Belkin, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how it all works. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Everybody knows who Donald Trump is. We have to let him know who we are. We choose science over fiction. We choose hope over fear. We choose unity over division. And we choose, we choose the idea that we can, as Americans, when we act together, do anything. Joining us now is Julia Manchester, campaign reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us again for night two of Democratic debate coverage. Thank you for having me. So a lot more fireworks this time around. Joe Biden was the front runner. He's been the front runner this whole time. He was expected to get a lot of hits all over the place. And boy, did he. He was getting it from everyone. Despite a lot of the stumbles that he had, he'll probably still remain up at the top. Kamala Harris looked strong at certain moments, but she was also put on the defense by a lot of people. Biden, Tulsi Gabbard was hitting on her uh, prosecutorial record very hard. I think Cory Booker came out very good. He he looked strong. He looked like he was having a fun time. He also got into a couple of spats with Joe Biden. Julia, who do you think stood out the most in this debate? Yeah, I mean, I think the moments that really stood out the most to me were when the candidates just piled on to Biden. I mean, we saw it was rematch between Harris and Biden. We saw also Cory Booker go after Biden. And that was very much expected from both of those candidates. I mean, they were, you know, Biden was sandwiched between them. Um, and, you know, I think Harris is someone who's looking to capitalize on that big moment she got from going after Biden in the last debate. And Booker is someone to, looking to kind of emulate Harris's success in the last debate. But Booker, I thought, had a very good night, actually, because, you know, I did some reporting last week on how Booker could potentially get his breakout moment because he's run on this idea of unity and staying together and, you know, love and hope and, you know, a very lighthearted, a very lighthearted unifying platform. And I talked to a lot of strategists who were wondering how he would be able to keep that platform while at the same time going on the offensive during the debate. And I think he really did just that. I mean, he opened not going after Biden directly. He actually opened essentially saying that, you know, this debate isn't necessarily good because it's pitting Democrats against each other. And that is what President Trump wants to happen. So he had that unifying moment. But then he went after Joe Biden, especially, you know, on the issue of criminal justice. He had one line where he said, there's a saying from my community Mr. Vice President, there's a saying in my community, you're dipping into the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the flavor. 
I totally agree with that. And but you got to punch back at some point, especially as this thing really develops. And when you get into the general election, it's going to get a little ugly. And, and, and to he stay did that, that way, really masterfully. And right. another way that I thought he really stood out was he was able to call out Biden for constantly invoking President Obama. And since President Obama is such a popular figure within the Democratic Party right now, you know, I think there's been a lot of hesitation for Democrats to really go after him. I mean, I guess in a way, it's a, a Medicare for all could be somehow an indirect criticism of the Affordable Care Act in a way. But Cory Booker essentially said, you bring up President Obama's name more than any other candidate right. here. You know, when are you going to try to differentiate yourself? Mr. Vice President, you can't have it both ways. You invoke uh, President Obama more than anybody in this campaign. You can't do it when it's convenient right. and then dodge it when it's not. So I thought that was a very interesting moment as well. Let's expand on that a little bit and go into Joe Biden's overall performance. He did do that quite a bit. I, I feel there was a lot of moments where he just, they, you know, they were people were questioning him and he says, well, you know, I went through this already with President Obama. We did a great job. How do you think his overall performance went? It seemed that he started out very strong. And I think a lot of people watching the first debate and a lot of observers said that he seemed somewhat disconnected, almost too relaxed. He wasn't really in it. He clearly was not expecting Kamala Harris to go after him in the first debate. And he even admitted that later on. But this time he was very much on top of it. But as the night went on, he kind of appeared to lose kind of lost his composure a little bit. You know, he was sometimes fumbling over his words. Yeah. He would refer to the same talking points where you have these other candidates like Harris and Booker who have these constant one-line zingers going after him. However, he did have a very, very good moment against Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. She really went after him about his previous stances on women's rights and such. And he essentially hit back at her and said, you came to Syracuse University with me and said it was wonderful. I'm passionate about the concern, making sure women are treated equally. I don't know what's happened except that you're now running for president. So I understand, <laughs> Mr. Vice President. So that was a good moment for him, definitely. But some rocky moments for him. It wasn't a consistent performance. I'll say that. It, it definitely wasn't. And I, and I think it probably was a byproduct of just getting it from all sides. I mean, all the lower tier candidates, let's say, for lack of a better word, they had that ammunition ready to go. And Joe Biden, I mean, you can prepare as much as you can, but you don't know where the shots are going to be coming from. So I think that did really wear him down over the course of the whole debate. How about Kamala Harris? Uh, we, I know we talked about her a little bit earlier, but she was one of the clear winners from the first debate, obviously through the interactions that she, that she had with the vice president. And this time she was on defense a lot. Tulsi Gabbard was scoring a lot of points hitting on her prosecutorial record. Yeah, Tulsi Gabbard had some really good one-liners for Harris. The line that really struck out for me was, you need to apologize to all the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor. Senator Harris, when you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not. And worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that. And the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, oh, you owe them an apology. That 
very label that Kamala Harris has tried to fight off, you know, this label of her being a cop is going to very much be a difficult hurdle for her to climb over, especially with progressives, especially in a party that has really pushed for maybe police reform and such. So she's going to have to very much push back against that. And I think Tulsi Gabbard was really able to hit her there. You know, Tulsi Gabbard is someone who's, you know, hasn't been a breakout star. I mean, she's kind of gone back and forth from making headlines and then she'll stay consistently behind in the polls. So she really needed this breakout moment as well. I don't think this is necessarily, you know, a breakout moment for Tulsi Gabbard all in all, but I think that attack on Harris could be a big blow to Harris. One of the main topics of yesterday's debate and also came back today is healthcare. Just kind of proves how all over the place the party is and really how difficult an issue it really is going to be to solve. Kamala and Joe Biden both got a lot of criticism for their health care plans, but Kamala Harris really was getting heat on all sides of it. That kind of became the central focus. She has a Medicare for all plan and and. Uh, Joe Biden just kept hitting on her how expensive that plan was going to be. Right. Um, that was quite a moment. And I think, you know, this healthcare debate compared to last night's healthcare debate was just, I mean, on a whole other level. Harris is someone who's taking a lot of heat from all sides of the party, really, progressives and centrists. I mean, I think a lot of progressives say it doesn't go far enough, while someone like Biden would say, well, how are you going to pay for that? What's your plan for that? So, you know, that that's another policy area that she's going to really have to try to, you know, that's another hurdle she'll try to have to climb over in the future. Biden is also getting some heat for health care. It's harder, I think, for the candidates to really attack Biden on health care because he is supporting Obamacare. And like I said before, President Obama is the most popular figure within the Democratic Party. But so no one wants to go necessarily officially against Obamacare. But I think there's a lot of feeling in the party that they want to go much farther than Obamacare. So in that way, Biden's kind of an advantage. And he, he used this line at least once during the de- debate. He said, why is everyone going after Obamacare on health care? Why does everyone not want to improve it? And I think that is um, a common defense you'll hear him see it say. Yeah, I mean, there was a story out from the AP earlier in the week that said that nine out of 10 people have some type of health care coverage, and it is largely through gains that came through Obamacare. Uh, obviously, things need to be worked on. The Everything is still too expensive and all, but that kind of goes into into that bucket of let's work on it, let's fix what we have versus a lot of these plans want to scrap everything and, and go for this Medicare for all route. Julia Manchester, campaign reporter at The Hill, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. There's a camp that's just disgusted by the idea that people would try to take advantage of money that is earmarked for uh, poor folks. And then there's another group that says this woman uh, was able to discern the very, very clearly the outlines of the law, and she was optimizing. Joining us now is Doug Belkin, reporter for The Wall Street Journal covering higher education. Thanks for joining us, Doug. Hey, how are you, Oscar? I'm doing well, thank you. There's been an intense national anger over college admissions since the Operation Varsity Blue scandal hit. Uh, and, fa- and and there's been a lot of stories about fairness in this whole process. 
Right now, the education department is looking into a tactic that has been used in some suburbs of Chicago where wealthy parents are transferring the legal guardianship of their college-bound kids to relatives or friends, business partners in some cases, so then those teens can claim financial aid and get scholarships and a bunch of other help. Doug, tell us a little bit more about this story. Yeah, it is interesting. So there is a woman in suburban Chicago who does college consulting. She helps kids with admissions and with financial aid with their families. And she saw that a lot of the families were really struggling with paying for college. It's not uncommon for parents to have over $300,000 in student loans if they have, let's say, three kids that they're, they're putting through college. So she's an astute woman. She uh, grew up in Bulgaria. She came here and she was very closely reading the FAFSA rules and regulations and realized that if a student transferred guardianship uh, to a third party, they would not have to declare the assets or the income of their biological parents for financial aid purposes, essentially making them poor for the purposes of getting scholarships, which then meant that they would be able to apply for Pell Grants, which is, you know, for families who don't have much money, and institutional aid from the universities, which is, you know, a finite supply of money that uh, schools give to uh, students on a need-based basis. So she told parents about this, and a number of them took her up on it and transferred the guardianship from themselves to a third party, usually a grandmother, an aunt, or an uncle, or, uh, or a friend. This is legal, as you said, it's just kind of this big loophole, but how many people have been accused so far of, of going this way? So the picture remains incomplete. The way that uh, we reported the story was to go up to the probate courthouse where these guardian transfers were taking place. But this is in one county. Uh, there's there's five major counties in Chicago, and there are obviously a lot more around the, around the country where this could be happening. But in this one courthouse where this seems to have been centered, and in one year, in 2018, I found 38 cases of juniors and seniors in high school who had these guardian transfership cases and who, when asked on the forums why they were transferring, uh, used pretty boilerplate language that said to the, something to the effect of, this guardian will be able to give this child better educational and financial opportunities. So it matches up, but we, we haven't completely connected the dots on each one of them, and we don't know how many others are out there. ProPublica was another publication that was working on this story. Um, they're saying that some of these parents are lawyers, educators, doctors, um, so they're not necessarily in need of the financial aid, although the parents would say otherwise. So, uh, you know, what kind of financial aid are the students getting once they go this route and transferring the guardianship? So it varies. And the incomes of the families who are using these services vary. She charged uh, about $5,000 a pop. So these weren't poor people who were going in. Um, I spoke to her today and she said that the bread and butter of her business were people earning between $75,000 and $125,000. So, you know, middle class in the Chicago area, upper middle class. I spoke to a woman who's a... Uh, uh, a lawyer who who's earning multiples of that. So it, it did range. And the effectiveness of this strategy also varied. But, well, two things. She said on her website that the average amount saved was $30,000 a year. 
and that um, the high end was $40,000 a year. So what that means is that uh, you would collect a, a Pell Grant, and you'd be eligible for a Pell Grant, which is $6,000 and change. In Illinois, there's a state grant called a MAP Grant, which is worth another $5,000. Uh, and then the institutional aid could be up to uh, uh, you know another ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars, depending on the cost of the school and the endowment and the generosity of the school. Yeah, one of the examples that you had, you spoke to uh, a woman who did transfer the guardianship of her daughter, uh, and you know the, she makes she has a household income greater than two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Their house is valued at about one point two million dollars. And what ended up happening through all this, she has to pay $65,000 in tuition. The daughter received $27,000 in a merit scholarship, an additional $20,000 in need-based aid, which this guardianship thing helps to get the federal Pell Grant. And basically all that she was responsible for was just about $18,000, which the grandparents are paying. So, uh, you know, this is kind of an example of how this would work out. The Department of Education is looking into this now to try to close this loophole. What kind of steps are they taking to try to fix this? So it seems uh, from my end of the telephone speaking to people in Washington, like there's a real legal morass. Um, What they want to do is change it so that if you're taking money from your parents or you're on their medical insurance, then you would not be considered an independent. To make that happen, however, is tricky. Um, Congress ultimately controls these rules, these financial aid rules, so it it potentially has to go to Congress to to get changed. You also got a chance to speak to uh, somebody who did get the guardianship of a particular kid. One of the first questions I had is, you know, God forbid anything bad happened to one of these kids, but if you're signing the guardianship over to another person, let's say it's a family friend or a business partner or something, do you not have any rights to over your child if something were to happen, if they got in a car accident or, you know, something like that? I'm just thinking crazy scenarios, but do the parents have no rights at that point? No, they do maintain rights. And and the laws on guardianship vary state to state. Uh, In Illinois, the way I understand this to work is that if you are, if you transfer the guardianship to a third party, you do maintain, obviously, access and rights to your child. The issue becomes if you want to steer the child in one direction and the guardian wants to steer it in another direction, you don't have the authority to do it by yourself. And you would then have to go to back to court and petition the judge to dismiss the guardian and the judge is up to their discretion. So you lose, I guess you lose absolute control that a parent would typically have. Uh, maybe absolute control is a little strong, but you you don't lose everything. You don't lose all control. Uh, last question I have is, uh, what has the reaction been to this story? I, as I said at the beginning, you know, we've, we've been going through this whole thing with Operation Varsity Blues and the college admissions cheating scandal. This just seems another loophole that a lot of wealthy parents are exploiting. What's the reaction been to this story? It's been really interesting. There's there's two distinct camps that have sort of formed. There's the camp that's just disgusted by the idea that people would try to take advantage of money that is earmarked for uh, poor folks. And then there's another group that says this woman uh, was able to discern the very, very clearly the outlines of the law, and she was optimizing the rules to her advantage, and that's what these families were doing. So uh, like everything else in America, uh, I think it's a polarizing issue. Doug Belkin, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter 
and Daily Dive podcasts on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Brooke Peterson and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.